Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows, and it makes the algorithm gods happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there. On the website, you'll see you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Man, do we have a good show for you guys today. A while back, we had an artist, John Mark Edwards, on the show. And John Mark uh, has become a friend of the show, a friend of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art. And John, who is not just a friend, but I collect his art as well. So we connect on multiple levels. And he had a show coming up. Well, actually, it's now a few weeks ago, but uh, (laughs) here in L.A. at Matter Gallery. And I went to the show. Uh, Of course, I bought more art, but I got to meet the gallerist, the owner of the gallery, Carla Funderburk. And Carla is one of these like artistic powerhouses who just draws you in and you just can't help but respect her and love her energy because she's just so positive and so smart and so talented. And so through our mutual connection with John, which by the way, shout out John Mark. Thank you, brother. Carla and I connected. And as soon as I met Carla, I said to myself, she's exactly the kind of guest that we want on our podcast. And so I extended an invitation to Carla to come on to the show. And she was generous enough to accept the invitation. So today, you're going to hear Carla and I chop it up and solve the world's problems for almost an hour and a half. We sort of went down the rabbit hole. But the fun thing about it was that 
I approached the interview a little bit differently. I just sort of hit the record button and we started talking. So I don't introduce her in a conventional way as I typically do. We just sort of start talking. So I'm going to experiment today with this audio and just sort of punch in kind of in the middle of our conversation and we'll get into it. But she's just got so many good things to say and her work and her life's work is so inspiring. I mean, she, of course, is an artist. She's a ceramic artist. She's a master carpenter. She builds furniture and does remodels, (laughs) by the way. But she throws clay and makes incredible ceramic art. She has her MFA from the Claremont Graduate University, but she's a gallerist as well and a business owner, entrepreneur. But her gallery, Matter Gallery, uh, here in Los Angeles, is a very special space that she uses to support artists and showcase their work. And her project, the Memorial Crane Project, which we'll talk a lot about, is a poignant, powerful arts project that she has been spearheading for the last couple of years to memorialize and honor lives lost during the COVID pandemic. So her story is a powerful one. Her energy is a compelling, beautiful energy. And so I'm thrilled to have her on the show today. And without further ado, let's get into this conversation with the one and only Carla Funderburg. To your point, it's this idea that it's all in us, that that desire, that power to create. And I've told the story on the podcast so many times, but there's a great book that I love called Orbiting the Giant Hairball, which was written by Gordon McKenzie. Gordon McKenzie was the chief creative officer for Hallmark Cards. And he wrote this book, Orbiting the Giant Hairball, which is essentially about how do you maintain your artistic integrity when you're you know, part of this corporate behemoth. And he told this poignant story about when he would go talk to, you know, school kids, you know, in the community to give back, he would go talk and speak to schools. And he would always start his talks with the same question, who here is an artist? And in kindergarten, every kid raises their hand. And then in first grade, half the class raises their hand. And then so by third grade, one little kid in the back sheepishly raises their hand. Yes, they're an artist. And so what kind of world are we creating when we've designed a system or designed a culture that is squashing or suppressing this innate, intrinsic, born desire to create and call ourselves artists? I wonder, when did he ask that question? What year was that book written? Because I think today, in today's world, I think that that would be a different answer. I agree. I think today there would be more children that would raise their hand, thank God, even though so much of art and music has been taken out of our public school system, I think that we are recognizing in a deep, profound way the need to honor our creative side. And that's a really interesting point because to think about why that is, and I agree, I feel like on a certain level, artists and the idea of art making and being an artist is, is far more mainstream now than it's ever been. And this sort of creative renaissance, which may get back to the democratization of creative tools through technology, so on and so forth. But I agree. I mean, I feel like for the last 20 years, certainly this idea of being an artist, making art, you know, being a creative, you know, these labels. I don't know about you, but I mean, back in my day, anyway, you know, in Chicago as a graphic designer, we didn't use the phrase creative, this idea of being a creative or creator. Those, for me, they feel like fairly new terms. I mean, do you remember using those terms? I do remember using those terms myself because I felt 
like I was a creator. I was always creating something. I was always a very energetic kid and I was always making something. And so that was a label given to me. So I kind of owned it. But yeah, maybe it wasn't as common as now. But yeah, I love that we are acknowledging that more and more and more. And I think that's a healthy, a healthy approach because everyone has a voice and everyone has something to say. And hopefully we'll find space to be better listeners. Well, yes, but you also referenced a kind of a macro environmental kind of condition because yes, arts education has been defunded largely in schools over the last 30 years and worldwide. And so on one hand, you have this defunding that has happened. And then on the other hand, we have the sort of inverse kind of bar on the graph, maybe of this sort of creative renaissance that we're sort of enjoying, you know, in, in terms of our, our popular culture. And it's fascinating because how do we make up the gap? I mean, I went to a public school. I was, I'm a public school kid, but we had a robust arts program and not just visual arts, but performing arts and music and, you know, and all of this. And then when they launched STEM, science, technology, English and math, I think, right. Then suddenly they realized, oh, wait, we left out art and then STEM became STEAM, you know? So now, seemingly, we're starting to, I guess, introduce arts back into curriculum. But I don't know. I mean, how are we making up this gap? Because it feels like it's a big one. Yeah, it is a big gap. Gosh, I don't really have an answer for that. But I do know that, as we were talking before you hit the record, I do think that the term creatives, that we see ourselves as co-creators, that we see ourselves in general as a creative force because we see our impact through social media, this dance, this thought, this poem, this photograph, this image, this design, this fashion is so much more accessible and communicated through the social media platform for good and for bad, you know, for, for good and bad. But it is allowing people to see you know, with anything, it's how you use it. It can be a very construct platform. And so it's just, where's your heart? And so that comes with the education, that comes with good parenting, that comes with influences and exposure. A lot of young people do come into the gallery because I, I am a, a local community gallery. And for me, if anyone takes the moment to come in through that door they are honoring me and my space. So I choose to take a moment, stop what I'm doing and let them know that it matters to me. Therefore the name, each person matters that they come into the gallery. It matters. They matter. Their ideas matter to me. I want to hear what they have to say. And so my intention is that they feel a part of, and that this is a space where they're safe and they can be heard and hopefully we can grow together in some way or another, you know, like we never know our impact immediately. Sometimes we can witness a transformation, but often it happens much later. Well, it, yeah, I mean, what you're hitting on is so important because we don't often know our impact, but we also live in a culture that seems to imply that impact only matters when you have scale. And that is so troubling because 
the most influence and impact we make on a day-to-day basis is in the one-to-one interaction, right? And so sometimes I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes because we're a you know small, lean, mean organization trying to build this thing brick by brick. And I do the majority of the heavy lifting. Of course, I have some amazing colleagues and partners that help drive things. But sometimes I wonder, like, is anybody listening? Who's out there? And, you know, where's the scale? Because we live in a world of, of likes and follows and we celebrate the, the influencers with X number of followers or whatever. And then you, you know, and you start to wonder like, well, wait a minute, isn't, does anybody care about what we're doing or am I talking to myself? And, you know, what I love about your, what you just said is people coming in, they're clearly curious and open to what Matter Gallery is doing. And you take that opportunity to talk to them and hear them and see them and let them be heard and let them be seen. And you're making that connection. And the other day, speaking for myself, I had this beautiful phone call that I got. And you may not know this, but a couple of years ago, we produced this artist conference and it was a professional development conference for artists to come, learn, share, and grow. And it was a wonderful day. About 200 artists, give or take, came. And we had multiple speakers and panels. And, you know, it was a professional development kind of a conference for artists. And it was, it was a wonderful day. It was a wonderful thing. And I really felt great about it. You know, we were going to do it again. And then COVID hit. And, you know, we're now kind of retooling. But I got a call the other day from this young artist out of Salt Lake City who shocked me to say, you know, I was at your conference two years ago and it changed my life. And he said, in fact, it changed my life so much that I'm going to start a conference here in Salt Lake City and would love to pick your brain and get your help in terms of thinking through things. And, And I thought, my God, I mean, never in a million years would I have imagined that somebody would be at the conference that day so inspired that four years later or three years, whatever it is, <laughs> two or three years later, they would end up in Salt Lake City starting a conference of their own. And and so for me, it didn't even, it didn't ma- scale didn't matter. None of that mattered. All that mattered was that one person was touched and changed and is making change as a result. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And and yeah, that's what we want, right? And that really is the thing that really matters. But like, we don't always get that phone call to let us know that it happened. We just have to like, kind of, I think for me, also, I'm doing that with the gallery, step by step, no matter how small the step is, just keep I kind of like feel like the turtle one step at a time moving forward, moving forward. I see progress all the time. And sometimes it's really quick and fast but not to give up when it's small and slow, just to keep doing the do and knowing, you know, if your heart is there and if you're walking in faith, that it'll all unfold just as the way it's supposed to happen. Absolutely. And by the way, to your point, I'm sort of reminded of that silly old phrase, like, don't believe the hype. I mean, you know, the reality is we might buy into this notion of overnight success or scale or big numbers, but these things often take years and years and years and are often inflated and not truthful to begin with, because many of these influencers that we're sort of talking about use click farms and everything else to, you know, inflate their numbers. So anyway, enough of that. Carla Funderberg, I am so grateful to have you on the podcast today. You know, this is so exciting. We, we sort of started in this kind of ungrateful. Uh, oh, fantastic. When did you get that tat? I love that. When did you get that? Have you had that for a long time? I got that when I turned 50. Fantastic. Excellent. 
that was my first tattoo. I was like, you know, why don't I have tattoos? I love tattoos. So right, it's, right. You know, it's been, well, I was going to say downhill, but it's been uphill from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. And, you know, I'm just so grateful to sit down because, I mean, there's so much to talk about. You're just one of these amazing human beings as a, as a creator, as a creative, as an artist. You are constantly producing, constantly creating new and important and lovely and thoughtful and beautiful ideas in the world. And of course, we met through our mutual friend, John Mark Edwards, and shout out John Mark. And uh, his show at your gallery was fantastic. And we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about the gallery. And we'll talk about all the things you're into. But first and foremost, you're an artist. And first and foremost, you got started, as I understand it, throwing clay. Is that correct? That's right. In my high school, I was raised in Europe because my father was in the military. So I was born and raised, born in Greece until I was 13 and then went to high school in Germany and then came to the United States and went to art school in New York first. That was the first undergrad and then ended up out in California by going to grad school out at CGU. And yes, I I knew right away at a young age and I'm super grateful that I was raised and able to see lots of amazing historical art, starting with the Acropolis, from early, early influences from two years old to on. We would go constantly to the ruins, to different, I mean, just museums. Once you're in Europe, it's just a train ride or a short trip somewhere else, you know, to Paris. So I got to see a lot of work firsthand. I was just thinking about the fact that you were going to ask me questions. And I was thinking, what was my earliest memory of being moved and influenced by by work? And definitely the Greek ruins, the monuments, that thing, the, the churches there. And then in Rome, the structures, the building, the Colosseum, all of that. But one of the things that really struck me, I remember going to the Van Gogh Museum and I was about 11 and standing in front of one of his paintings and trying to discern which brushstroke came first, like literally <laughs> dissecting it, trying to figure out and asking my mom, what, what color do you think he painted first? And then what was the first layer? And I really wanted to know, like, how did he build that painting? Which is interesting because I use a lot of that building that process in my work, in all of my work, really. Like, what comes first? How does this choice impact that choice? What is underneath? What is below? What is around? And I, I think in terms of the deconstruct in order to learn and inform the construct. I started furniture building after grad school because I had to make a living. And so I was designing custom furniture and I never went to school for woodworking, but the CGU had a wood shop. And so I started using the tools in order to build these environments. They were like sets, almost vignettes to perform in. And so once I started to understand the tools, it was just another platform to express myself in. And so I deconstructed, found furniture in order to figure out what came next. Like, oh, when you're building a chair, you got to build the bottom first, you know, and like this gets clamped first and then this gets clamped. So it really was a discovery. And I think in terms, when I look at the world, I think in that 
in those terms? Like, how was that put together? What was the mind behind that? So yeah, I, I definitely have always thought of myself as a creator and a construct in the construct. Well, it, it sounds like also you had early validation, perhaps from your parents who identified this in you, or at least you identified it in yourself. It's like, no, I'm I'm an artist. And at a, at a young age, it sounds like you were aware of your artistic acumen. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at one point, I was transferred to a different school in Greece, and it was in second grade. I got so excited that I was going to this new school. I built a globe and made the earth like a paper mache globe. And I wrote a story and made it into a book. My mom bound it into a book. And I literally arrived the first day of my class and gave it to my new teacher. And there was like a present. I got to give you something to know who I am. Overachiever. Overachiever. I know. I was totally the one that got to go do the ditto. You know, remember the ditto machines? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Carla walked down the... No, no. I just love... Because I wanted... I wanted... I think I always wanted to share. And I still... Like, I know it's sort of that thing of knowing when to accept a thank you and not feeling like you have to thank you for the thank you. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you gave me a gift. Let me give you a gift. Yeah, for you. Uh, yeah <laughs> okay, Topper. <laughs> uh, but no, no, but that is, no, but that is joking inside, right? I mean, that is the generous spirit of an artist, right? I mean, they, you, we just want to give, give, give. And, and you know, and, and sometimes to the financial detriment of our household, right? <laughs> because, because you know, you at some point you've got to make a living and figure out how to sell your work, which by the way is interesting what you were saying, because you came out of school after really learning, I guess, ceramics and molding and shaping clay, but you came out of art school and realized, well, wait a minute, I need to make a living here. And you pivoted into woodworking because you felt like that was more commercial and, and you could monetize it and make a living better. Is that correct? Well, yes, because what in grad school, well, actually it was before that. So during undergrad, I went and studied at the Anderson Ranch Art Center in Aspen, Colorado, Snowmass. And then there's also one in Sun Valley. So I did the art center in the Anderson Ranch and became an artisan resident there and started kiln building. I had heard about the Anderson Ranch when I was a, a high school student. There was a film strip about the ranch when it was first formed by Jim Romberg and Paul Solner. And they had created this like art colony, like an art communal living space and art space right there on the ranch. And so I was like, that's where I'm meant to be. I need to go there. And so I ended up going there. They were like, oh, we don't have any space for you. And I was like, you just don't know me yet. I am going to work my ass off for you. You're going to see I'm going to be here. I, I knew it. I knew it. Yeah, I was yes. right where I needed to be. And it turned out, yes, I stayed. And I was there for three and a half years. Working with Paul Soldner, I started also participating in the kiln building. And once I was doing these low fire saw kilns, and they were quite successful. Paul loved the effects that the kilns that we were building, that I was building, had. And so it was sort of like I had walked into the vessel. And once I had walked into that vessel being now the kiln instead of the pot, I knew that I no longer was going to be satisfied 
with the scale of the vessel. And so once I went, and he helped me get into grad school here at Claremont, he taught at Scripps. And so once I walked in, I no longer made, they weren't functional forms, but they were vessel focused forms. They were influenced by vessel, not functional. And then I started doing installation art. So I was creating basically environments that I would perform in. So I started doing a lot of performance. I was one of the, I hesitate to call it dance, but it was movement focused performers for a company called Shrimps. Then I started building, like my MFA show was about home because I had moved so much. So it became the spirits that you feel, the energy that you feel in structures that you witness and walk through and participate in. And so that became my MFA show, but I had to build these vignettes that then the visitors would walk through and walk over. There were bridges and that kind of thing. And once I did that, I was like, oh, I just learned how to install a door. (laughs) I just put a window in. So after grad school, I couldn't afford anything. So I started building myself furniture and I had this big party and a friend of mine's mom came and she was like, oh my God, who made this cool table? And I'm like, oh, I did. And then she's like, D- this desk too? And I was like, yeah, I made that. She was like, oh. So I started realizing like, oh my God, I'm not selling installation art. I'm not selling performances, but I could sell a table. I could sell this funky bed that I made or whatever. And so that's how it evolved into my furniture. So my challenge was finding ways to maintain my creative perspective, my need to be creative, and still work within my artistic side and make a living. So my first gallery was in 1991. I opened on Abbott Kinney. And in 91, it was right when it used to be called Washington Place, and then they changed the name to Abbott Kinney. And so it was not as expensive as now, but I couldn't afford it in the long term. So I started doing custom furniture instead of sort of the one of a kind pieces that I would have in the the gallery. And I showed artists as well in the gallery, other artists, along with my ceramics and my custom furniture. So that was kind of the evolution. I think i went on a detour. But yeah, I had to, you know, I think that's the challenge is how do we creatively make a living, feed our need to be creative, and still feel like we haven't sold out, given up, let go of. And believe me, there's times in my past where I felt like, what do I have to say? What do do I have anything to say? Do I have anything of importance other than, yeah, that I made a beautiful cradle for a baby, or I made that rocking chair or whatever. So yeah, finding that balance, and then mostly finding it within, because it's really, I think the challenge for anyone is being okay with yourself and your choices. Like, it's not an answer outside of you, the answers are within you. And so hearing those, and understanding those voices that seem to direct us and guide us, finding our true self, not the influence, the outside influences. I think that's 
always like that spiritual warrior that's guiding us that we all are and all have. Yes. And the courage of one's convictions, right? And reconciling that with the realities of living in a world that forces us to pay for rent and pay for food. And, you know, it, it is this this idea of selling out that artists grapple with is such an interesting one because it's very idealistic, isn't it? You know, and reconciling those ideals with the practicalities of paying rent is, is just that constant struggle. Yeah. And I think we spoke about it before we turned on the mic was about like that, that whole idea of putting an artist on a pedestal, like elevating that position instead of recognizing that we all are creative and that we all have that element within us in our own capacity, you know, and it's that voice of greater than or less than. And a lot of us listen to the less than, or there are often those voices of like, well, no, I would never do that. So that's that, it's that judgment. And that judgment is the thing that separates us and separates us from our true value and the value of others, because that judgment, you know, the judgment is the thing that builds the wall between us and that fear, fear of less than fear of greater, you know, I'm too good or I'm not good enough. And so that battle again, is that internal battle. But but for me, as I recognize, the more I just walked forward in faith and opened my heart, a lot of it had to do with opening my heart to myself, you know? Often I would find myself having more patience and understanding to others than I would of my own self. And so being my own best friend, letting myself make the mistakes, letting myself grow from the mistakes. Yeah. Well, and having courage, I mean, the, just the, the courage, you know, that you, I mean, opening a gallery on Abikini in 91, I mean, that took a lot of courage. That was a huge risk, for example. Yeah. And this here too took a lot of courage. But now as I've lived my life, I recognize that through those moments of taking the risk, an, an informed risk, it's not just like jumping. Many times people say, oh my God, you just go for it. There is like this level of intuition, maybe I would call it, like knowing that this is the right thing to do at this moment. When things sort of start to line up, you see like, well, I can tell you one story. I went to the landlord, I had my appointment and I made my offer of what I could pay. And he was like, no, 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 no. That's way under market. That's way under market. I can't do that. How about this? And I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to do what I was, you know, suggesting. And he got distracted. He got distracted. And finally he said, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? He goes, let's meet in the middle. And I was like, okay. I mean, I really want to do this. I'm going to meet in the middle. And I said, but I really need a three-year lease. And he was like, three years? Oh, no, 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 no. And he goes, one year. And I said, no, I really want, I I feel like I got to, if I'm going to do it, I got to at least know that I can have it at this rate for three years. So he got distracted. He told his assistant to, or secretary to write up my lease. He gave me it at my rate (laughs) and at the three years, like he totally forgot what he (laughs) said and he only did what I had said. And I was like, 
I like walked out of there shaking, like, oh my God, how did that happen? Like he was- re- where, do, where do I sign? Where do I sign? Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> okay, the universe just touched me. Like the my, my higher spirit just let this, like I walked through on like a golden road somehow. So those are little signs for me that gives me the strength and the courage to keep making these choices when things start to fall into alignment. So Matter Gallery is such an interesting space and, you know, we have so much to talk about because, you know, clearly the gallery is a space to not just show your art, but show other artists and support them and empower them. You know, you have the woodworking and ceramic shop, you know, kind of in the back, if you will, of the space. And then I think you have your, your office upstairs. And then the last two or three years has been such a, you know, I think the technical phrase is shit show for for humanity. (laughs) And you, like so many people, have found hope and and found ways, maybe through listening to your your inner voice and taking that courage to to say, okay, this has been a disaster, a human crisis. What can you as an artist do to find the light? and try to bring hope and and bring honor to humanity, you know, in this situation. And it's been, and of course, COVID was one thing, but then we had George Floyd and we had, you know, so many of the other sort of police brutality and social justice issues that happened. So we had artists that stepped up in so many interesting ways to honor these victims and shine a light on injustice and the criminality of our own police forces and so on and so forth. And of course, your work with the Memorial Crane Project is a prime example of an artist, in this case, you, you know, using your superpower as an artist to make art and to communicate through art making, connecting to our common humanity, connecting to a a bigger force, a bigger energy, a bigger idea. Uh, You know, the, the Memorial Crane Project is such a lovely, heartfelt, inspired, spiritually rich art installation. First of all, kudos to you for not just having that. I mean, having the idea is one thing, but you had the gumption and the skills and the courage to then see that idea through, which, you know, that's a whole nother thing, right? There are people, people get ideas and maybe don't see them through, but, but you were able to take this idea all the way through into realization and I just, you know, as I've read up on it, as, as I've looked at it, I, you know, my heart was just so moved because the victims of the pandemic, for many of us, myself included, were just so disconnected. And I personally didn't lose anybody in the pandemic, like close to me. I know people who did. So indirectly, I felt that loss. Whole households, whole families were devastated. I've heard of children losing both parents. You know, I've heard of parents losing their children and their family. I mean, there's so many stories. But the Memorial Crane Project is such a powerful way of memorializing and honoring these stories. Please tell us about the Memorial Crane Project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So the Memorial Crane Project, it was my idea, but this is the beauty of it is how much of a collective collaborative art installation it is. I'm the vessel, but I could never have done this on my own. I want to put that out there right away because what happened was 
I have lost people. I know through friends and family, 11 people that I've lost through connections. It was early on when New York was having that big surge. Dear friends of mine, she lost her mother and her husband lost his mother. And this was a family where our kids were raised together from preschool all the way. And and we became family friends where we would spend the holidays together. If there was a play at school, the, the grandmothers would come in town from New York. And so these are people that I had had Shabbat with. I had had birthday, you know, bar mitzvahs I had attended and sat next to them. It wasn't a number any longer. This was someone that I cared about. And they were, you know, in the trucks behind the hospital, the refrigerated trucks. They, the the thing that kept striking me, and I know that I wasn't alone because no one went through this alone and no one experiences it alone. No one experiences the pain of it alone. And I would find myself driving and just start bawling, like the the energy of loss. And I mean, we didn't even have water in the grocery stores. Toilet paper was, a, you know, it was just chaos. And so our world was turned upside down. Anyway, so I have a practice of prayer and meditation in the morning, exercise, prayer and meditation. And so I had started folding cranes while I was listening to MSNBC in the mor- in the evenings, and they would continue to t- tell us the, the count, right? It, the numbers kept going up. And so I knew that I wanted to do something, but I, I, like, how could I do anything? Like we were isolated. I had to close the gallery. People weren't leaving home. Like, what can I do? And so I really just did it for myself and my own sanity and my own process. And then in my meditation in the morning, I heard a voice that said, you can't honor these people alone. You're going to need help. And so I put it on my social media, a place where we can connect, right? And I put it out there and people started dropping off boxes, sometimes envelopes of maybe 10 or one with just one name. Thank you for doing this. It's beautiful. And I started stringing them and stalling it in my gallery because I couldn't put any artist in there because nobody could come in. So I was folding every night and then I started receiving packages. And then there was this day where Aaron Rainan, a, a AP reporter, was looking for a different address. And he walked past my gallery and said, what the hell's going on in here? This is beautiful. He goes, can I come in? And he photographs it. And he goes, I'm going to send this to my producers. And I didn't hear from him. Spectrum ended up doing a little something. And then AP picked it up and it ran. And then I started getting packages from, I have received packages from Dubai, from, of course, all over Europe, but from Tibetan monks, from Sadako's organization, the Hiroshima Foundation. That group of young teenagers sends me cranes. It's just continued to grow. Even now, I still get packages of cranes. Not every day. For a while, it was every day, multiple packages. But now I have over 180,000 cranes. And what I recognized was that as people would come into the installation, one at a time with their mask on, they would share a story. I would ask them, have you been impacted 
personally, have you lost anyone? And sometimes they would say no, but I know of someone, or they would start to tell me a story. My favorite uncle, Nigel, he taught me how to fish. He was my favorite uncle because, and then that person would leave my gallery. And I'm like, wait a minute, I can't be the only one that knows about uncle Nigel. I need to start holding space for the memorials that we're not able to have. And so I started collecting stories. And then on my website, I started inviting people to share stories and names. And I never knew what the next step was going to be. But then I started realizing I wanted to put it in other venues. And so I started asking around. So today we've put it in seven different locations, Seattle, Boulder. It's now also quite locally, you can drive out to Palm Desert. There's 20,000 in a 20-foot entrance, like a foyer that's got 20,000 cranes hanging. And we have a, a wall of remembrance with the names and then a QR code where as you walk through it, you can hear some of the stories. We're going to be installing it over here at Campbell Hall in Studio City, a, a school over there, which is where my daughter went to school. And so, you know, the intention is to create a space where we can honor those people and, and collectively, first, it's a collaborative effort and it's a collective healing that happens. Witnessing when someone walks into that space and walks through the labyrinth and then recognizes that their loved ones maybe died alone but they are, you know, in physical form, but they aren't alone because they're flying here represented in these cranes and that they themselves are not grieving alone because all of the loved ones that made those cranes and honored those people were folding collaboratively, collectively, and then now they come together and you really do sense this enormous connection and oneness that happens. And so that is such a healing, powerful message, but also it's tangible. It's transformative. You are physically impacted by it. And so my goal, and that's why I started a, a nonprofit as well during the pandemic was it evolved into this understanding that as I would speak about it to different elementary schools, high schools, universities, Japanese center, uh, cultural centers, Grief counselors use it even. So I realized that one in four represents an orphan. And we are now at over 900,000 deaths in America alone. You divide that and that will let you understand how many children are parentless right now. And so there's a, a tremendous we're excited that we're able to get vaccinated and start to connect. We saw the, the Super Bowl was awesome. You know, we're all there together again. But the devastation and the loss that people are still faced with is going to be impacting them for the rest of their lives. Well, and to that point, right, for so many people, there is no such thing as going back to normal. And there's this rhetoric, of, you know, this kind of narrative that we all have. It's like, oh, I can't wait to get back to normal. And, you know, we're, we, you know, maybe we don't realize, myself included, as I'm listening, as we're talking, I'm reminded of how fortunate and lucky and blessed I happen to be that my children still have their parents. And for them, 
sure it was a it was a shock it was tra- traumatic but it was nothing compared to those orphan children whose lives will never be the same and and now what sure we can come out of the pandemic you know get vaccinated and not necessarily have to worry about covid but but for those children where are they now and what does their future look like right I mean, that's when we decide, you know, do we have the courage to look at that, to hold space for those children, to hold space for those families? The goal is to to create a shift and to connect as opposed to divide. And our previous administration was very focused on the division. And then the response hopefully can be one of connection, community, coming together and holding each other, holding space for each other, supporting each other, you know, the homelessness, you know, you're driving LA, you know, you cannot avoid it. It's everywhere, every, every tunnel, every overpass. A lot of that has increased since the pandemic because of loss of, of work and loss of healthcare. And there's a lot. And so I feel it too. It's so big. How do we make our impact? How do we make that change? And so that's where the courage to just do that little thing that we can each do each day, whether it's one act of kindness, you know, a smile can lift someone's day, acknowledging someone. Every little gesture only creates a bigger ripple. Like you mentioned with with that person who called you back, you had no idea the impact you were having. You were just doing what felt right for you in that moment. And I think we have to recognize is that, and that's what matter gallery is for me, is you matter and you matter to me. We are matter. We do matter. And it, it's sort of, uh, you know, people laugh when I say that, but that is the spirit behind it. And that is my intention is to hopefully communicate that as well that what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, those make a difference. And I think our society, it's like, no, 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 just keep going, push it back, push it back. And so a lot of it is based on numbing those feelings because they feel so big, right? But we have to also, if we're numbing, we're numbing our love as well. And so stay awake. I think that's one of it is don't look away, recognize there are things, small things that, that we can do slowly by slowly, by voting, by making a difference, creating, you know, making a dinner for someone in your community. You know, here in my little pocket of mid-city, my neighbors, we get together, we feed the homeless, we do backpack drives, we do drives for personal hygiene. Procter & Gamble donates a bunch of it. So find your way to make one little thing change. And then, you know, whether it's donating, maybe you have the means. So maybe it's donating money to a cause you believe in. And if you don't have the money, maybe it's working somewhere for someone as a volunteer for a minute. But I think that's the thing is we need to feel that we matter. Carla, take us back and share with us the story of the the legacy of the Japanese crane and the young girl after World War II that inspired this beautiful legacy of the folded crane? Sadako is the name of the young girl. She was two when the United States bombed Japan. So she contracted leukemia at a young age. And as she was fighting for her life, her friend had told her that if she were to fold a thousand cranes, her wish, her prayer would come true. And so it is so touching about that story to me is that 
So as she's folding cranes in the wishes for her prayer to come true, her prayer wasn't that she would get better and not die. Her prayer was for peace on earth. Peace on earth. She knew a bigger plan. She had a bigger understanding than this, like, okay, just take care of me. We need peace on earth. What caused that war? Let's recognize our oneness, peace on earth, and safekeeping. And so for me, the reason I thought that was a perfect symbol, instead of like people say, why didn't you do Day of the Dead? Why didn't you do another symbol? Why didn't you make a rose? Why didn't you, you know, whatever. And for me, the more traditional meaning of the crane is the safe travel, safe transport into the next life. So with all these souls transporting, transforming, ending, whatever your belief system is, but the transformation from one thing into another. So the crane is that safe transportation, but also the transformation, I mean, but also safekeeping and peace on earth, because that was in, we were in a time of great divide. George Floyd had just been murdered. There were all of the, you know, this, this was early on. And this was also politically where there was such divide. So that was why I felt that it was a perfect symbol. And I have, my godchildren are half Japanese and their grandmother taught me how to fold cranes when I was flying back from Israel with her and we folded cranes and she told me the story of Sadako. And so there was a relationship to the two grandmothers that I had known of my best friends that had just died of it. And even though Jane had already passed way before COVID, she was the grandmother of my godchildren. So I connected the grandmother's story, I think, is subconsciously. I don't think it was something like, oh, it was not this very linear thinking. It was very intuitive of like, I need a symbol to communicate these feelings I'm having. Is there a place, I, I was on the website, I didn't see it, maybe it's there. Is there a place on the website where people can download a template to how to fold a crane? There is. There's also, I have multiple YouTube videos under Matter Studio, I mean, uh, Memorial Crane Project, sorry. I have other ones under Matter Studio Gallery, but I do have how to fold a crane. And I do these demonstrations with students a lot. So in the demonstration, I make a mistake so that you can see there's no big deal. You just... It's all about transforming this flat piece of paper into this beautiful symbol of, of life. Right. And even Carla Funderburk can make a mistake. Yes. <laughs> even after all these years. You're human too. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Just refold it. Yeah. Just back up and do it again. You know, we get to we gotta we gotta reboot our phones. We get to reboot every day. Forgiveness, right? We don't need to be perfect. Although I was trying to do the quick math because you you said something on the website about you realized like, well, if I folded all these cranes myself, it would take like 24 years or 28 years or something. And I was like, okay, well, how many, how long does it take to fold one crane? <laughs> like, right. Well, <laughs> it, it takes a while. Your first couple of times, I, my first time, it took me five minutes to fold a crane. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Now I can do it. The kids always ask me and want to time me. So the fastest I've done is one minute and eight seconds. Ooh, that is fast. Yeah. So I'm pretty fast now. I don't have to look, but yeah, it's, it takes time. And then to string the cranes, I'm actually having a stringing party here this weekend, the 19th and 20th here in the gallery. Because we're going to be preparing for the next installation in Campbell Hall, 
And it takes the volunteers anywhere from 25 to 35 and sometimes an hour to do one string, one string. And we're putting in, you know, 20,000 cranes. So it's a big commitment of time. But what's beautiful is also that community experience and sharing that happens in each of the different processes. So yeah, when I did the math, it was at 88,000. And I was folding around 20 a day at night listening to the news when I first started. And it was going to take me 24 years. And in two days, on Saturday, it went up to 90,000. And then that was going to be 29 years. And that's when I was like, Oh my God, I, there's no, I, I'm not going to be, probably not going to be alive in 29 years. So um, <laughs> well, I need the, help. The, you, let's hope so. But yes, it is, uh, it is a trick. Well, so, and you use to hang the, the cranes, you use a uh, copper wire. No, actually I use a poly, like a clear fishing line, basically. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. A poly, like a polyfill. I, re- I suspend it from copper wire armatures. Got you. Okay. Okay. But talk about the significance of the copper. So I chose copper because in my, uh, one of the hats I wear is also, I I started doing a lot of project managing, construction, coordinating design of renovation, home renovation. And so copper is a raw material and copper also is worn to ward off illness as well. But copper is the life force. It brings electricity, so it brings light into our lives. It's also copper pipes bring water into our homes and into our lives. And so the reason I chose copper was because these souls had brought life and energy and life force into our lives as well. So symbolically, it made sense to me that they would be suspended from copper. I love that. I love that. I mean, the other question though, Carla, is like, is there anything you don't do? I mean, really, (laughs) when I was on the website, I was doing research because I knew you did the woodworking, but the fact that you you do remodels and home design, and it's like, wow, this is a truly a multidisciplinary artist. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really freeing to explore all of that. I love welding. As a matter of fact, the other night I got a friend called me and she said, I, I bought a bike and it, I bought it in the box because it was going to be too expensive for them to build it. But I'm halfway through it. I have no clue how to finish it. And I was like, I can help you with that. So I went and built a bike uh, two nights ago. But I think part of it is that thing I spoke about is my vision of what goes first. Like, how did that get built? You know, like what needs to happen? And just to look deeper, I guess another thing is, is I, I think artwork that touches me, going back to John Mark, the pieces that were in the gallery, one of the things that he did, those, those pieces that I just showed were all works that he did during the pandemic. And it was a whole new way of working for him. Whereas before it was very controlled and very structured and very graphic and very designed. And this became much deeper for me, even though I have a lot of his work, I love his previous work as well. But this was like an invitation to look deeper, to use things in new ways, to look behind, to look around, to consider differently. And I think that's what the pandemic did 
and helped us recognize is for us to stop and look deeper, look at what our relationships, look at how much we need each other. Look at, you know, we were isolated, separated. And what it did is it brought us an awareness of like, oh my God, I actually need, I need to hug someone. I need to relate. I need to see someone smile. I need to look in someone's eyes. You know, we were a mask, you know, it was really hard. I'm, people would say, can you see I'm smiling with my eyes because you can't see my smile right now. So this great need for us to connect and be connected and feel connected. And so for me, it, it relates to there is no limit. The limits are only what we present to ourselves. Self-imposed. Self-imposed. You know, we can do anything because we are completely perfect and whole just as we are. We get to choose. That's my path for the day. This is going to be my path for that day. And so what, what is that journey going to bring to me? And then embrace it. Like, oh, I have this opportunity to listen. I have this opportunity to learn. You know, I'm surrounded by young people all the time that teach me like, oh my God, <laughs> I was trying to do the 501c3, the nonprofit. And they're like, well, which server are you using? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I, I didn't even know what, when you bring it down, like what server? i like, oh, you mean Chrome? I thought you meant what my Wi-Fi was. I was like Spectrum. I was like, oh, I'm on Spectrum. They're like, no, 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 your server. It's like, I don't know what you mean by that. And then they start, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, Chrome. I got Chrome. But anyway, it, it's just like, you know, every day I have an opportunity to like look differently and not be afraid to say like, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me, what is it? I don't know. And so to be open to learn, open to learn and learn from anyone. You know, the sweet young boy that came in and he, 11 year old boy came into the gallery when I first had my very first installation. I had been interviewed on KCRW and his father heard it. And so they realized that the gallery was just down the street from where they live. So pandemic, quarantining, everything still in place. But they came to the door. I was here and they had their masks, their gloves, their face shields on. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Come in. It's just me. I'll stand over here. And the young boy said he was an aspiring photographer. And he said, can I take a photo of you? And his dad was guiding him and like, okay, do this, do that. And so he took a bunch of photos and then I got involved with a conversation with his dad and he was looking at the crane sort of walking through the, the labyrinth. And then he came back over and he goes, can I take one more? And I was like, of course, of course. I walk over, he snapped it on his own, without advice, without supervision, without guidance, the most beautiful picture taken so far. So I bought it from him. I said, you know what? You deserve to know that your art is valuable, that you are valuable. I want to buy that from you and I want to use it. And so that is the picture of me with the cranes in my orange shirt. And it's taken from an 11-year-old's perspective. It's like you see more of my waist up. You know, it's like he's his perspective was looking up at me. So again, it's like everyone has something to offer. I mean, and it's a, it's a lesson, you know, I have to practice it too. I, I have to remember to practice, to stop and to listen and to pause. But I know that it's available for me if I just do it. Well, it's that, that notion that we are, that we are vessels. And if we remain open and allow, allow things to come to us, into us, through us, 
that that creates an opportunity for beauty and magic to happen. And that's such an inspiring story because I want, you know, that photo that you're talking about. And it's the one with you kind of looking like you were in the cranes, like the cranes are. Yeah, I I saw that photo. I was like, that is the most awesome photo. (laughs) I just loved it. 11 year old. Jake Sparks. Jake Sparks. Yeah. Amazing. And by the way, you're looking quite buff. Uh, I don't know like uh, what you do for exercise, but you're looking you're looking very very healthy and fit too. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, yoga, yoga's the answer. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I had a thought about that about staying open and willing. You said like when you stay open. One of the examples that I recently experienced was. When I think I have the answer, when I think I have the the vision and I force it, like really like, no, this is this is the frame it should be in, my understanding of the universe is limited. And so it's from my little vacuum of limited potential based on what I've experienced, even though I've experienced a lot and you know, maybe mine is a little bit more open than some, but I still have a very limited understanding because I I recently had this opportunity to present, you know, remember when New York City was going to be reopened and they were going to do that huge concert? Well, I had a friend that was going to help me present the Memorial Crane Project as a installation for the stage. And so I had the opportunity to present it to the mayor and to Clive Davis. And so I was really excited because they were moved by it. They obviously understood it, yet they decided to not show it because they didn't want the focus to be on loss or the devastation. But I was like, well, why are you in my mind? Like, why would you be reopening New York if there hadn't been something tragic that happened? Right. So I I was really like blown away that they didn't accept it. The night of the big event. I don't know if you remember, but it was also the U.S. Open tennis was happening and there was that incredible rainstorm flooded the city, the subway, everything. Every crane would have been lost. So there was something bigger than me and bigger than my limited understanding that was protecting. And so if I can open my my mind to understanding that my ideas are limited And if I open myself to the limitless, more can happen. And so, again, not perfect, but I get the opportunity to practice that. Wow, that's so poignant. I mean, you know, and I'm I'm just remembering too, you know, I, we have those moments where, you know, we're disappointed and what have you, or maybe something good happens and we think, oh, this is it. This is the beginning of a whole, you know, like, like I made it now. And, you know, and oftentimes things don't turn out in the way that we anticipated. And in my own journey, I sort of, I think I'm finally to the point now at 51 where I'm saying to myself, okay, what am I supposed to learn here? What is the universe trying to teach me here? Because clearly I'm exhilarated on some level, either I'm exhilarated with emotion around something positive, or I'm exhilarated with emotion around something perhaps negative or bad, but let's not be fooled here. This is a teaching moment. What am I supposed to learn? And, you know, and it's in, it's in, in my own life, it's been helpful to pause. And I think it's kind of been born out of my meditation practice actually over the last year. You know, one of the things 
Well, this is, I guess, a perfect example. I mean, I have, I've flirted with meditation off and on over the years, never really taken it seriously, but I've known, appreciated it and know people who've changed their lives. And I have a buddy who quite a successful guy, but he sort of left everything behind because he started meditating and it's changed his life so much that he started wanting to teach others and write, you know, write about it and, you know, and spread the, spread the love. And what part of what I love about my friend is he, you know, he's a total dude, you know, he's not precious, you know, so he's, he's sort of like, uh, you need to meditate <laughs> you know? sort of like in my face about it, you know? And, and so, and he's been on me for the last few years. Well, coming into 2021, late part of 2020, I had a conviction, you know, just this, just this feeling that, you know what, 2021 is the year where I'm going to start practicing meditation and taking it seriously. And so I reached out to my buddy and I said, okay, <laughs> you, you got me. I want to work with you starting January 1st, January 2nd, 2021. And so we then began, you know, working together and he started coaching me. And, and so, and I didn't know why I just knew that it was necessary Right. And so there's two parts. I mean, one is that now, uh, you know, a year, 15 months in, I can absolutely tell you that it has made a huge positive impact on my psyche and on my spirit and on my day to day life and the quality of it. But I had no idea that my dad was going to pass in May of 2021. And that meditation practice, which I had been applying, if you will, and practicing for five months, made a huge difference. I mean, I was just a babe, you know, in the practice. But having that meditation practice helped not just help me in my grief, but I think it helped, you know, me help my mom and her grief and obviously continues to this day. But it's just this idea of, I guess, being open and being a vessel and trying to be, listen and hear what the universe is trying to teach us and what the universe is trying to say. And how your practice trickles out the re repercussions with your mother, with your, I'm sure with your family, with your partner, with those around you, within yourself, how that process interconnects all around you. And then that ripple just continues. And so that takes me back to a couple of things. A, everything matters. Everything is interconnected. We are really only one vibration moving together. And so I wanted to kind of go back to the gallery and the, the what I'm trying to do there is to create this platform for diverse voices, diverse artists, different mediums, different perspectives, different experiences to have this platform in a community environment where they are able to feel heard, feel support, and recognize that they have also financial value, you know, that they can actually sell a piece. So it's not, you know, there, there's so many different levels. And one of the questions that a lot of people, I was in the LA art show with John Mark's work, actually. And a lot of people ask me, do I still consider a value a brick and mortar? Like, why wouldn't I just take it online? 
And I think the pandemic has taught us and our conversation is also bringing this point really clearly back around is that because we need to see and be seen, hear and be heard tangibly, not, you know, like in space, not on a screen, because like right now I can see, I feel your energy. Your image on my screen is like, is completely foggy. So I, I can't actually see you. I, I want to see you in your eyes. I want to feel your energy in my space. And that can only be achieved in person. And so I think that's what the pandemic has taught us, is that we actually need each other. And we need to be supported and feel support from each other. And how do we do that is by giving that. Like you are right now, giving that to me. Yeah, no, it's this idea. This is a whole nother podcast, isn't it? Because, you know, when we think about, I call it the kind of the atomization of humanity. It's like technology is dividing us, parsing things out, you know, whether it's the gig economy and now you can't have a job with a, with a team at a company for 10, 20 years, you have to drive a car, you know, for Uber, or you have to do a gig, you know, a freelance project here or a freelance project there, whatever. And so on one hand, you have all this technology that the mythology is that it's bringing us closer together. And maybe for those of us farther apart, like you're across town, I'm over here, you know, the technology is bringing us together in this very specific medium and interface, but it has real limitations. And the technology doesn't help me care about my neighbor more. I barely know my neighbor. And so if all politics are local, then what good is that if I don't know my neighbor? And so, so many of these problems that we have, these existential global problems are about, it seems to me that the solution is rooted in coming together, not being divided. And yet, you know, on one hand, I think there's an awakening that's happening among certain segments of society, certainly, you know, which is a beautiful thing and needs to happen. On the other hand, you have forces at work, big tech, for example, that maybe doesn't give a shit and they're just trying to, you know, make money and create these tech, these tools and technologies that, you know, they don't really care about the unintended consequences maybe of their technology. They're trying to serve their shareholders and trying to make a buck and whatever. So it's just like all of this stuff is happening and seems to be, at odds with each other. However, I do have hope. I do. And Carla, I don't know where you find hope, but but conversations like ours right now give me hope. Yeah, I have a lot of hope. And I have when I walk in the cranes, I have tremendous hope. When I witness people walk through the cranes and walk out and see their their energy transform. They may walk in with deep, not that they're going to walk out, you know, skipping and jumping and, oh, I left it all behind. But the recognition, I think what it sort of breaks down to is this recognition that we are one, that we are really one. And what impacts you is impacting me. So therefore, I care about you because I care about me. I love you because I want to love me more. You know, it's like I might be learning how to love myself. And so how do I do that is to practice loving others. But it starts within. It starts within. The answers are within. You know, I'm not going to find any answer outside of me. Yeah. And we can't love our neighbors if we don't love ourselves. And that sounds cliche, but it's true. 
It is true. And so like, how do we practice that? And so one of it, you know, is to find kindness and support where we need it most. And, you know, this is another thing that I, I think of too, you know, like a lot of during the pandemic, friends of mine and myself included, were like, yeah, I really should have been doing more of this. I really wanted to do more of that. And I've got that extra 10 pounds or whatever. Right. So we have those shoulda, woulda, couldas all the time. And the interesting thing that I've, I've recognized is that I'm not saying I act on it every time, but I know what I should be doing. I know when I shouldn't be doing something. I have a built in and I don't think I'm unique in this way. I think we all have that built in thing like, ah, I shouldn't probably have done that. I right. shouldn't probably say that. You can that. feel it. You can feel it in your body. Absolutely. And so do we listen? That's the question. If we're working from a place of like, okay, I want to create a positive impact. I want to, I want my energy to be one of love and support, kindness, giving change, right? So if that's the change I want to create, how do I do it if I'm not taking care of myself? If I'm not starting within, like, oh, that's not a very healthy breakfast, you know, whatever it is, something as simple as that, or like, yeah, I, I feel like I need to go out. I need to breathe the ocean air, you know, and the, all day you'll, I'll hear in my voice, in my back of my head, like you need to go for a walk or be in nature or do something, you know, and then I won't. And I won't. Well, by the way, this is an interesting point you're making because I think about it a lot because part of the challenge I think for for you as an artist and, and me as an artist vis-a-vis -vis what we're talking about is this idea that when when we love what we do, like when you know what I what you I mean, you could be a doctor, you could whatever it is that you love what you do, it is in in work is a pleasure. It is hard to put work down sometimes and go for that walk and go to the beach and go, you know, because, because, you know, we're lucky people that we, we are doing work that we love to do. And so work is a joy often, usually. And so there is that struggle because you absolutely still, you do need to put work down and go outside and go for that walk because you need that balance. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, Carla Funderburg, I am so grateful. Me too. Thank you so much. You've been so generous. We've been we've been solving the world's problems for an hour and 20 minutes, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> now, if anyone will just listen. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Anybody out there? No, I know people are going to hear this and I know they're going to be grateful for it too and appreciate it. And, you know, Carla, where can people find you online? Online, I'm at matterstudiogallery.com is my website for the gallery. And then I have memorialcraneproject.org is my other website. And then I have Instagram and Facebook. And both of those are, one is Matter Studio Gallery and at Memorial Crane Project, same thing on Facebook. And I'm here right in Mid-City, right on Pico Boulevard, 5080 West Pico, just west of La Brea. And if you hit Fairfax, you've gone too far. <laughs> Did you hear that, Angelinos? We're here in LA. Come on through, check out Matter Gallery and meet Carla. She is, as you know, as you can hear, an amazing human being. And Carla, will you do me the honor and promise that uh, you'll come back sometime and uh, do this again? I would love to do this again. And I do want to shout out to the artists I feel negligent in that I haven't mentioned, Dale Brockman Davis. So Dale Brockman Davis is this incredible legend. 
in the Black community here in South Central LA, the Lamert Park area, after the Watts riots, him and his brother Alonzo ended up opening the first minority-focused gallery there, which is, I think, similar or close to Art and Practice. I know they are affiliated with Art and Practice, but they, for years, had their own gallery. They weren't selling a lot of work, but they started collecting from each exhibit. They would buy a piece of art from whichever artist that they showed. And they created the Brockman Collection. And as they closed their gallery, many people wanted to buy the entire collection. Getty, multiple places were interested, but they realized that they hadn't allowed the platform for these artists prior to that. And so they decided instead to donate their collection to the LA Public Library. And so again, the most amazing man, he's got a beautiful retrospective here in the gallery right now, Dale Brockman Davis. And I have many artists that are coming up that are really amazing. Some are emerging artists, some are artists that have been around for many years. But as you know, it's a very competitive market to get your artwork in a brick and mortar these days. And so I'm always looking for new artists. My schedule right now is is booked through the next year, but I'm open-hearted. So come show me what you're doing and I'm always interested in meeting new artists and seeing what they have to present and what they're working with and what they're processing. Well, that's wonderful. And I'll tell you right now, Carla, that we'd love to support, you know, the the artists that you support. So that being said, if you think that the artists you're showing would be amenable to come onto the podcast and have an interview and have a chat, we'd love to have them. Oh my God, we would love that. Yeah, anything we can do to amplify and boost and promote their work and their stories, that's what we're here for. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcasts and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.